I would like to open the sermon this morning with a reading in 1 Peter 2. You don't have to turn there, just listen. Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And a stone of stumbling in a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, in which, which in time past were not a people, but now are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy." Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak evil against you, whereas, I'm sorry, whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they shall behold glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves therefore to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. And for the praise of them that do well. So that, that kind of outlines perhaps what I'd like to think about this morning. Is, is the, the church being a chosen people. But yet we are living in the world. And we're relating to those who are set over us um, in government. And the, the um, instruction here is to submit ourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. So the title of the sermon, and I, I don't hardly know if this is a sermon or if this is just a lecture and teaching. I almost feel like it's more of a, a teaching session than a, than a sermon, if there's much of a difference. I'm not sure. But, um, so, but I titled this, The Followers of Jesus and Politics. I'm not planning to include the idea of non-resistance in this sermon. It could well be a part of it. But I think Nathan will probably be addressing that in his next sermon when he, when he's, uh, as he's going down through the Sermon on the Mount. But as we think of our response and of, of the way that we deal with the American political landscape, I think there's two basic principles that are foundational. That are foundational. And the first is that we have to understand our situation with a New Testament ethic. Understanding that the New Testament replaces the old. And as we have uh, considered a while back, a Christocentric view of the scripture where Christ is the fulfillment of the law and all of the law and the prophets anticipated him and he came to fulfill that. And we talked about that a little bit in Sunday school, I think. Or at least um, there was a reference made uh, to that. Was that devotions this morning, Owen? Hebrews 8. For finding fault with them, referring to the Old Testament law, 
For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and, they will, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people." And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith, A new covenant he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. That's the, new, the, the Hebrew writer building a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament covenant. The Holy of Holies, um, the Hebrew uh, writer says, was for the time that was then present. But the New, the new Testament is for the church. Romans 7 describes it as a remarried widow. She was once bound to a man who was her husband, but this husband has died, and she has remarried. So now in her remarried state, she is bound to her second husband. And Paul says that's how it is for the church, there was, or for the people of God. There was a husband who has died in the death of Christ, but is now remarried to the resurrected Christ. We are bound as a people of God, these, this royal priesthood, this holy nation, this peculiar called out people are now married to the resurrected Christ. We do not live under the old covenant which was fulfilled and was um, buried with Christ. So that's the one principle that we have to have in place for us to understand how that we should relate to the political world around us. And second, it must be based on the principle of two kingdoms. The kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of this world. And we, we talked about that um, in Revelation. Um, and I was so glad for that preface to the sermon. And we think about these famous words of Jesus. and They were quoted this morning already. That my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight. That I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. These two kingdoms are to be kept entirely separate. We are part of the one. But where the, where the rubber meets the road is, is that we live surrounded by the other. And that's where, um, that's where we find ourselves. Now, We haven't thought about this. Turn, turn to Revelation 17 and 18 a little bit. We haven't thought about this in our study of Sunday school, in our study in Sunday school of the book of Revelation a lot. But when we think of the Old Testament prophets and what, how they referred to the nation of Israel when she departed from God, was the term whore was used time and time again. They went a whoring after other gods. That's God's terminology for when His people 
Turn away from him. Alright. And now we have this same idea here in Revelation 17. Verse 1. A little bit into the verse. Come hither, I will show you the judgment of the great whore which sitteth upon many waters. With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Now I'm going to, I would like to, I know we were thinking of the whore this morning, as, or as, as Babylon, as being um, the world. And, but I would like to narrow it down a little bit. And think of this whore here in Revelation as being the people of God who have departed from Him. I think, the, I think the terminology bears to that when we think of, of how it was used in the Old Testament. I will show thee the judgment of the great whore which sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. And then we have the same idea over in um, verse 3, one of the verses we studied this morning. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. Alright. What I think is happening here is that God is using graphic terms for what He thinks of when the church joins hands with the kings of this world. When the church joins hands joins hands with the state. It's an abomination to God and it will be judged. The interesting thing about this is that the main character in Revelation 17 and 18 is not the kings of the earth, but it's the whore. It's the fallen church. Her fall is depicted by her illicit relationship with the kings of the earth. And the call to the true church is to come out of her. Come out of her, my people, that you be now partakers of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues. Second Corinthians 6. I think we um, thought about that passage in, in Sunday school too. Um, I'd like to read you just a few verses there. Verses 14 and following. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing and I will receive you. And I will be a father unto you and you shall be my sons and daughters saith the Almighty. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and of the Spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Alright, just, a, just a, a quick overview of what happened when the true church, and I'm talking in a historical sense, what happened when the true church joined hands with the state, when she committed that fornication with the state. One of the most obvious is that the power of the gospel was exchanged for the power of the sword. Warfare became the means of spreading the gospel. 
to compel them to come in was changed to mean that we were literally forcing. I shouldn't say we were. I trust that it's not us. I trust that we have come out. To compel them to come in meant to literally force someone to be baptized. Baptism became an identification with a nation and with a geographical entity more than with the suffering Savior. Communion came to mean a partaking of the body of Christ without regard for doing what he says in following his example and of being a part of that one bread. Corporal punishment, imprisonment, capital punishment became the means of the church. Keeping pure, can I say that? Corrupted though it was, they used these things to keep their church pure. And they, they, um, they excised heresy with corporal punishment, imprisonment, and killing their victims. Rather than the loving exercise of the ban and shunning. Another thing that happened was the common people were not expected to be able to live in obedience to the law of Christ. A life of obedience was relegated to a few people in in monasteries, the monks and the nuns and perhaps the priests, although everybody knew it wasn't so. Now I think it's widely recognized within Christian circles that the church fell at the time of Constantine. And that's not just within the free church. And what I mean by the free church is is those who do not compel their members to come in. Those who believe in a voluntary baptism. Those who believe in voluntary church membership. We are not compelled by the force of the sword. I think it's widely recognized across Christianity that the fall of the church happened with Constantine. And I'm just going to throw this out. And I, I really think that that is included in Revelation 17 and 18. All right, turn to Romans 13. Our responsibilities to the state. We think about Romans 13 and, and who this is addressed to. And some of the language that Paul uses in here... Um, we have to remember that this was written to the saints in Rome. All right? And when he talks about, um, but if, that, if thou do that which is evil, he's talking to the saints in Rome. He's talking to us. He's not talking to someone out there somewhere. He's not talking to a, um, a thief, a, a, uh, a crook. He's talking to the saints Alright, so let's remember that. Romans 13, let's read, um, let's read the whole thing. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works but to evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? To that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. 
Wherefore, ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this Thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light and let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Now that passage, fascinatingly enough, was written to the saints. All power is given by God. The powers that be, this is verse 1, are ordained of God. Jesus claims all power. All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, he says in Matthew 28. The powers that be are ordained of God. And he's he's referring to civil authority. And if we resist this power, we are resisting what God has ordained. He says, if we receive... If we resist, we shall receive damnation. Or we're going to receive judgment. So the the idea here is, is that do you not want to live in fear of your government? Do what is right and you will be commended by them. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Another fascinating thing about this is that the the political landscape was was in in Rome. This this was ancient Rome where where Paul was was talking about and Paul himself lost his head to the emperor Nero. But he is saying that we don't have to be afraid of the government because the government was ordained of God to keep order. He is the servant of God. See, the necessity for the state, the necessity of the state is human sin. The reason that the state is ordained of God to keep order is because of human sin. But the ordination by God for the state expresses both God's wrath against sin and his protection for the church. His gracious love. It's an expression of God's love because the state was ordained by God to protect and to order the lives of its citizens. And so we are called to obey our government. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. So we are to obey the government as far as biblically allowable. And I'd like to think about that a little bit. Government. Government is not intrinsically wrong. Sometimes we get the feeling that anything that the government tells us is wrong to do because of where it's coming from. All right, But government is not intrinsically wrong. 
The government is necessary. It's ordained of God. Its mandates are to be obeyed as far as a biblically informed free conscience allows it. Does the government telling us to do something that is morally, scripturally neutral make it wrong for us to obey? Because it's not God saying so. For instance, when we, when we build a house, if you build a house for yourself, you have to put smoke alarms in your house. It's law. You don't read a word about it in Scripture. Does, does the government intrude upon your right when you say, when they tell you you have to put smoke alarms in? No, they don't. Because they are ordained of God to keep order and to, to make society function. Even though, perhaps we are at some level allowing the government to dictate what our conduct is. But as long as those things are not prohibited in Scripture, we can follow these things with a clear conscience, we are mandated by the Scripture to obey them. Because He is ordained of God. So even if there's insignificant little things like that, we are, ordained, we are required by God to obey these things because they are ordained of God to make society at large function and to keep order there. But I think we need to remember that we can only do those things as our conscience allows we need to obey where our conscience allows. And one of the things that we need to understand is that our conscience should be as much as possible biblically informed. I believe we weaken our position when there are things that are biblically allowable. And I'm talking about when there is a matter of conscience that, that we would um, perhaps be called in front of government for. I think we would, we would weaken our position by having so many things on our conscience that we have not done, that have not been biblically informed. And say, we can't do this. We can't put smoke alarms in because we have a conscience against it. We can't put an SMV emblem on the back of our carriage because our conscience doesn't allow it. Okay? I think our conscience needs to be biblically informed. And when it is, we, we strengthen our position for when there is something that is actually a, a biblical mandate that we are resisting uh, before the government. You understand what I'm saying? Am I clear? I hope so. We, but we also need to recognize that Christ alone is the Lord of the conscience. Christ alone is Lord of the conscience. But I also would like to say with that that we need to, as much as possible, have our conscience informed from a biblical um, perspective. Now, we have a lot of 
culture, a lot of group awareness, and a lot of history for the basis of how we apply the scripture. And those things are very valuable, and we cannot um, do without those things. I'd like to think about some practical or current issues. And this is, this is where I um, am almost feeling that perhaps this is a, um, a teaching session rather than a sermon. A couple, a couple things that sometimes we uh, do good to think about. Is or was America a Christian nation? I think we need to understand that from a New Testament perspective... There can be no such thing as a Christian nation. The concept of nationhood, the concept of civil government is biblical enough, but it is outside of the perfection of Christ. While God has ordained it and put it in place, it is distinctively non-Christian in its purpose and in its function. Let Let me define what I mean by the perfection of Christ. And that is... Um, what uh, Jesus wants for his church. And I'm, I'm borrowing this from the Schleidheim Confession, Article 6. The sword is ordained of God outside the perfection of Christ. It punishes and puts to death the wicked and guards and protects the good. In the law, the sword was ordained for the punishment of the wicked and for their death. And the same sword is now ordained to be used by the world and magistrates. In the perfection of Christ, however, only the ban is used for a warning and for the excommunication of those who have sinned. Without, the putting, without putting the flesh to death, simply the warning and the command to sin no more. All right. So we, we, just, we touched this idea this morning about this gap between... The, uh, the world and the church. And I believe that to be politically involved demands spanning a chasm that cannot be bridged by the disciple of Christ. First of all, the scriptures don't authorize it. Christ's example, secondary, Christ's example was otherwise. Third, you cannot govern without lording over, which we are told that we cannot do. And fourth, for the Christian to, to govern violates the principle of separation from the world. So let me just, let me just um, help you out with that a little bit. The state will use the sword. The church lives in peace. The state will avenge. The church forgives. The state will in war, engage in warfare and strife. The church will exercise love and patience. The one enforces laws that itself has made. The other cannot lord it over another. The church will maintain itself by practicing the ordinance of the ban. The other knows nothing of it. Scriptures ask the question, can two walk together except to be agreed? The answer is obvious. No, they cannot. So there is this chasm that cannot be spanned between the church and the world by a disciple. You cannot live in both worlds. The question is asked, doesn't a Christian make a better ruler? Doesn't a Christian make a better ruler? Well, I'd like to point out to you that there are two different kinds of wisdom. 1 Corinthians 2, Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor the princes of this world, which come to naught. So there's the wisdom of the world and then there's the wisdom of Christ. 
The wisdom that a worldly ruler uses is designed to work through vindictiveness, through strife, and through vengeance. The wisdom of the people of God brings about grace and mercy and love. And it will endure in tribulation and it will endure the cross. The wisdom of Christ does not express itself in the same terms that the state is ordained of God to use. So if a Christian is in a place of authority, he handicaps that office by not being able to conscientiously pronounce judgment. If a Christian is in the place of authority, he handicaps that office by not being able to conscientiously um, use the force of the sword. And the same applies to serving in jury. If you ever stop to think about this, a conscientious Christian if he, is, if he is coming to the place where he is in the jury box and is asked the question about what we're going to do with the person um, who's being judged, the Christian cannot conscientiously um, give a unanimous support for what the other 11 jurors think should be done. And the jury will be hung every time if the Christian follows the New Testament principles. The Christian cannot serve in the jury effectively. He cannot be in a place of authority like that. Even if it's obvious what the best verdict is. Alright? So, so we have this quandary where the Christian doesn't belong there. The Christian places himself in a quandary that he should not be placed in. He places the courts, he places the office in a position that they should not be in when he serves at a place like that. Here's another question. Is freedom, as Americans think of it, biblical? There are many freedoms that we enjoy and we should be very appreciative of. We have the freedom of speech. We have the freedom of the press. We have the freedom to peaceably assemble. Now, just a month or so ago was the 15th anniversary of what we remember as 9-11. In these few years, there have been ways that the American political landscape has changed that would have been unthinkable before that happened. Personal liberties have been compromised. Surveillance has been exponentially increased. And what once what Americans once cherished as constitutional rights are being taken away. And you compound that with a redefinition of marriage by the state and a militancy of those that will enforce tolerance. You bring those two ideas together. It is my feeling, along with many others, that there are storm clouds on the horizon as the people of God. In fact, this, the, the storm is, has broken in some places for our people. Some of our people are already facing the wrath of the state. But people who believe that we ought to obey God rather than men, people who refuse the world's definition of morality and sexuality, people who would rather suffer than bear arms, and people who refuse to acculturate to the world around them, 
those kinds of people will be in the world's crosshairs. But it's not the first time that the true followers of Jesus have been there. And we as Anabaptists have been blessed with a heritage of courage. It's a heritage that is worth studying. It's a heritage that is worth promoting. It's a heritage that is worth emulating. And I hope you think so as well. I believe that we should be good stewards of the freedoms that we have been given to us and use them to the best advantage for the kingdom of God. So the question again, is the freedom that we are granted in America required by the scripture? Along with questions like this, is democracy a biblical idea or is capitalism a biblical idea? The answer is very clear, I think, is that the scriptures don't tell us how the kingdoms of the world ought to be run. The scriptures are given to show us, as a people of God, how to live. The New Testament is the covenant that Jesus made with his followers. It does not speak to civil authority. So I don't know if I answered all the questions that I raised or not, but I hope so. Now, here's another question. I think most of us would think of ourselves as socially conservative. What I mean by we are um, conservative, a conservative is, is traditional. That's, that's, the, that's the idea of conservative. It's traditional. We, we are socially conservative when we think of the culture around us. The question that I have for you to think about is, do we as a socially conservative people have anything in common with a politically conservative party? Do we as a socially conservative people have anything in common with a politically conservative party? Now, I'd like for you to think about uh, some terms here. The one term is pluralism. Now, pluralism is the idea that there's more than one system, more than one group of people, more than one more than one set of principles that can coexist. Okay? So that's pluralism on the one side. And here's another term. Is a melting pot. How many of you have ever heard the term that America is a melting pot? You may or you may not have. But that was that was a very strong sentiment a hundred years ago, was that America is a melting pot. Another term uh, for pluralism is multiculturalism. I think you can maybe understand that. Multi means many, and cultures means uh, the way people do things. So, so America has a multicultural... Um, it's a multicultural place. It's a coexistence of different cultures. An example of multiculturalism has been given like this. Would be, the, would be the, a Korean man selling kosher tacos on the streets of San Francisco. Okay, so we have an Asian man uh, selling Jewish food uh, with a Mexican flavor to it on a, Spanish in, on a city that's named after, a Spanish, um, after the Spanish. All right, a Korean man selling kosher hot, selling kosher tacos on the streets of San Francisco. Those things could happen. All right, that's multiculturalism in America. A pluralistic society allows us to maintain 
an identity separate from the culture around us. All right? If it's a melting pot, if America is a melting pot, it will be hard for America to accept anyone who is different from them. Now, I'd like for you to think just a little bit about the Anabaptist influence on a pluralistic nation. And that's the case of Yoder versus State of Wisconsin, which is the case of an Amish man who was not sending his children to the public schools in Wisconsin that went all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States. At the root of this man's convictions was the question of whether or not he was going to allow his children to be taught and influenced by the state school system. He refused to send his children to the public high school because he did not want them to become integrated into American society. And the Supreme Court of the United States decided that the parents' right of religious freedom outweighed the state's interest of universal education and that the state's compulsory education requirements beyond the eighth grade would endanger, if not destroy, the free exercise of this man's religious beliefs. So here was, here was something that went the whole way to the Supreme Court. And you can, you can check these things out. These things are right there and you can read this. I, I, just, read, I just read a summary of, of the case just uh, yesterday or day before. So the Anabaptists have influenced the idea of separation in church and state in America and so have helped shape America into a pluralistic society. Now, just hold that idea in your one hand and I'd like to give you another idea to consider. To consider. Uh, and that's this melting pot. A melting pot society is one where people from all over the world become integrated into what is now American society. See, the 13 original colonies were primarily British. The French and Indian War kind of decided that. But since, people have poured in by the millions from other countries. In the, in the late um, 1700s, early 1800s, a lot of these people came from Northern Europe. And that's when a lot of our ancestors came here. Later in the 19th and early in the 20th centuries, they were mainly from Southern and Eastern Europe. And later in the 20th and continuing to today is an immigration from Latin America and Asia. So all these mass immigrations have become the face of America today. But up until the mid-20th century, America was considered to be a melting pot. When people came to America, they were expected to adjust their way of life to American values and to adapt to American culture and to speak English. A melting pot society has no room for someone who speaks another language and who espouses different values and who does not fit into cultural norms. Now just recently, um, this happened when the Democratic National Convention was in Philadelphia um, a couple months ago or whenever it was. There had been a, a little eatery in, in Philadelphia that had a sign up that said, please speak English when ordering. And of course, in the multicultural uh, society that we live in, with all the tolerance police around, this little sign had evicted a lot of controversy. 
But it, it had been kept up because it was the owner's father's wishes. Now, this, this, the owner's father had died, but it was, his, it was his wish that this sign be kept up. And it was kept up until the, uh, until the DNC. And the old man had wanted America to become a melting pot. When, but when all the um, political liberals descended on Philadelphia for the Democratic National Convention, this man decided he's going to take this sign down. The son took it down. All right? So it's just kind of an illustration how America has moved from being a melting pot to a multicultural society. But here's the thing. Uh, going back to the definition of being conservative, which is uh, traditional. And I, I'm not talking in a, in, a, um, in a religious sense. I'm talking in a political sense now. The more politically conservative a person is, the more they think that America is a melting pot. A conservative will hold the more traditional approach, and that is the melting pot ideal. Now, here's the point. I know this was a long, drawn-out way to get here, but here's the point. For the person who appreciates the fact that we can live in America in peace because of its pluralism, we are different than the, main, than the main of American society. And if we appreciate that, we have an appreciation for multiculturalism in America. For a person who appreciates the fact that we can live in America in peace because of its multiculturalism, to vote for a politically conservative party makes no sense. I hope you get that. In fact, he may be voting against the very things that our brothers have been jailed for. And that, that being, being different from the main of American society. Now please understand, I'm not advocating that we vote for a more liberal candidate. I'm only trying to, to, to show the tendency among us to sympathize with a more conservative political party does not make sense. It's not consistent with our desire to be different from the culture around us. So to summarize that, I'm only trying to illustrate that I think it is best that we don't become involved in politics at all. To, to espouse the conservative political party um, undermines the things, the multiculturalism that we appreciate, to espouse or to um, endorse the, the more liberal uh, parties, I think, I think that uh, we can see that that is, is fraught with problems too. All right, so let's, let's move on to some more practical things. How should we then uh, live here? First Timothy 2, turn there please. How do we relate to those in authority? 1 Timothy 2, 1-6 I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, 
intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. All right, first of all, supplications, which is a prayer for a need. And then prayers, talks about a prayer in worship or a public prayer. And then intercessions is pleading with God on the behalf of someone. And then thanksgiving is expressing gratitude toward God. So this fourfold kind of prayer is what we are to be making for all men. And it says, especially for the king and for the ones who are in authority. The, the reason that we pray for the king is so that we can continue to lead a quiet and peaceable life. In all godliness and honesty, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. But the thing is, is that this is not an end in itself. The quiet and peaceable life is to provide an opportunity for us to spread the gospel. We need to be good stewards of the freedoms that God has given us who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And then another practical thing. So first of all, we can pray for them. Another thing is paying taxes. Now Jesus, Jesus gives us some really unhandy words right here. If he wouldn't have given us these things, we would have um, saved ourselves a lot of money already. In, in not paying taxes. I'm, I'm pretty sure that we would have developed conscience against paying taxes. But here's Jesus' words. And these are expensive words. Matthew 22:15 and on. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent out for him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that thou art true, and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man. For that regard is not the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought him a penny. And he said unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? And they say unto him, Caesar's. Then said he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. And when they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. So, we are instructed very clearly by Christ, by Christ himself, to pay taxes. And then Paul also, in um, Romans 13, which we read already, For this cause pay ye tribute also, because they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. It's their responsibility, it's their God's servants to keep order. And it takes, it takes assets, it takes money to do this. And we are required by God. Uh, by the words of Christ, by uh, the words of Paul, to pay taxes. So, it's in paying taxes that the one who is a citizen of another country is accepted at least to a certain measure. Even, even practically, it's good advice. But not to reduce Jesus' commands to practical advice. This is a command and this is what we do. We pay taxes, all right? It's because of the ordination of God on them that they're required to keep order. Now the question is raised, what if they are corrupt? 
And what if they're not keeping order? Well, it seems to me that we probably should anyway, because when we think of the corruption and the immorality that was rife in the Roman government of Paul's time, and he writes this, it seems to me that we should be able to follow uh, these instructions in our context today. But yet, if we um, follow the apostolic example, it also seems right that we um, avail ourselves of the, of the uh, judicial um, provisions that uh, are here, just as, as Paul did. So I'd like to tie all this up with um, a passage in Hebrews 11 where it talks about Abraham and how that he was looking for another country. See, we are citizens of another country, but we live here. And so sometimes we need a little bit of instruction on how to, how to uh, manipulate in this, in this context where we are. This is, this is Abraham's example. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a country, a better country, that is, and heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. So besides all the practical implications that I talked to you about, there is a better country that we're looking for, and we cannot afford to tie ourselves down to this, uh, the kingdom of this world. Let's kneel for prayer.